Hello everyone and welcome to the third season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I am your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name is George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is Season 1, Episode 2, The Minoan Civilization. In Episode 1, we covered the hypothesized origin of the Greek people. At least, the origin of their language. We ended the episode with the Proto-Greek people migrating to the north of the Balkan Peninsula and the Aegean Sea, where they made first contact with one of the Bronze Age empires. And these were the Minoans. Our first main character for the history of modern Greece was neither Greek nor from Greece. He was a British man who lived in India. Well, the main character for episode 2 is also not Greek, nor is he from Greece. But this time, he did work in Greece. We are talking about a man named Sir Arthur Evans. And the reason we are talking about Sir Arthur Evans is because he is credited with the discovery of the Minoans. This is a very fascinating aspect of early modern Greek history. Because historians did not have a clear vision of history. There were no archaeologists. There was no DNA evidence. And as we just discussed in our first episode, etymology was in its infancy. All people knew at the time was what they read in the classics. Aside from the classics like Plato and Thucydides, there were also Greek myths such as Zeus and Hercules and the Iliad. But historians had to decide whether or not to disregard the myths because were they just made-up stories? Or should they keep the myths and read between the lines of all that supernatural stuff? There was a time when everyone knew the Greek myths as fluently as modern-day people know the plot to their favorite movie. And if you went back far enough, they could even tell you which Greek hero was their great-great-great-grandfather. But as the centuries passed, the myths became, well, myths, detached through time. And once the Roman Empire converted to Christianity, the myths were completely disregarded altogether. Now we know for sure that the Greek myths were not forgotten completely because a famous Roman princess wrote a manuscript in the 12th century that referenced the ancient Greek myths. But the adoption of Christianity made sure to label any story about old gods as pure paganism. That's how it's been viewed by everyone for nearly 2,000 years. And that's how most people view it today. So let's introduce our main character for episode 2, Sir Arthur Evans. He was born on July 8, 1851, in Hertfordshire, England. He was born into a wealthy family that was both educated and also industrious. They owned a paper mill and had amassed a small fortune. The family members were very well educated in all the classics 
and would often quote them while arguing or discussing such topics. Tragedy struck Arthur's family in his seventh year when his mother died giving birth to his sister Alice. Once Arthur was old enough to attend school, his father set him up at Oxford University, and it is here that he took a huge liking to the Ottoman Empire. This was an empire that existed for hundreds of years. In fact, it was credited with taking down the mighty Roman Empire. And although they were still around, it was an empty shell of its former self. And everyone saw the writing on the wall. The Ottomans were the old man of Europe, and soon they would be no more. But what did that mean for the people living under Ottoman rule? Hey, Dad. What was your most memorable vacation during your school days? Well, that would be easy. We used to go camping a lot. There wasn't a lot of money in those days when I was young and going to school. So uh, camping was it, and it was a blast. Do you want to know what Sir Arthur Evans did on his summer holidays? I think I'm about to tell you about that. Arthur and his brother were given a large sum of money and were sent to the continent to gallivant around the brand new country that formed after the Franco-Prussian War. This country went by the name of Germany. When he crossed the border from France into Germany, he was told to be careful of the clothing he chose to wear so that the German soldiers did not mistake him as a spy and shoot him on sight. He ended up traveling across Germany and entered into the Austro-Hungarian Empire, where he came across the mighty Carpathian Mountains. While Arthur sat at the base of the mountains, he discussed with his friend the intention of entering the Ottoman territory. He had never been to an Islamic empire before, and he had no experience with Turks. They could travel south across the borders if they followed the Danube River, a path that Crusaders had taken nearly 800 years before, but that would take them right up to a heavily secured part of the border, and they decided the best way to enter the Ottoman Empire would be to climb the high peaks of the Carpathians and cross over illegally. They crossed through the mountains with revolvers in hand, ready for a firefight, but they made it without incident. They ran into a Turkish man and offered him gold in exchange for local Turkish clothing, including the Red Fez. His journey into the Ottoman Empire was one of his highlights of Oxford, and it happened while he was on summer break. He wrote extensively about the entire adventure and had it published in Fraser's magazine. After graduating from school, Arthur Evans and his brother Lewis traveled across Europe to attend another school in Gothenburg. And once he was in Germany, he found he did not like the place. The countryside was filled with poor peasants while the rich lived in the city. He was visiting the German city of Trier, the oldest city in Germany, when he saw a group of men raiding artifacts. The thought of privateers stealing old relics and keeping them for themselves or selling them off for profits made Arthur sick to his stomach. So he hired his own team, brought them in to scoop up as many artifacts as he could, and then sent them back to his colleagues in London. It is obvious from the letters that he sent home 
but he wasn't impressed with the place and intended to travel to the Balkans, as that is where all the action lay. This is where Arthur Evans officially dropped out of school and took up his career in archaeology. I'm talking about the intense type of archaeology that we heard about in Indiana Jones. They traveled down to the border of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, and one night they were looking for a place to stay, and they thought, you know, it might be safer if we sleep on the Austrian side of the border. And you know, it makes sense if you're worried about tensions between locals and the Turks. But it's something to be mindful of. The British weren't exactly on friendly terms with the Austro-Hungarians either. And someone saw them and thought, these men look suspicious. And they went to the police and reported them. The man who saw the two brothers also had a sketch of suspected Russian spies. And either the drawings were very good, and these two men fit the description perfectly, or perhaps the drawings were too generic. Or who knows, maybe the brothers just looked suspicious. But they were reported to the local authorities, who quickly visited the hotel to investigate the situation. And without getting into too many details, the police chief went to the hotel and demanded to see their passports. An argument ensued in which the Evans brothers said, We are Englishmen and we are not accustomed to this sort of treatment. Well, then I'll give you the appropriate hospitality reserved for the English, answered the policeman as he placed both brothers under arrest. As the two men were dragged away in handcuffs, a crowd grew around them. People wanted to see the Russian spies being hauled off to jail. All the while, Arthur Evans shouted that he was English, and that by messing with him, they were risking a war with England. Let's just say that didn't work, and the two men were forced to spend the night in an awful Austrian cell. The next day, an official came to see the two Russian spies and was surprised when they were speaking English. And as soon as he heard them threaten them with the English Navy, he quickly opened the cell and brushed them off before profusely apologizing and saying that this was all a misunderstanding and that the Navy didn't need to come here and resolve the situation. After their release, they crossed into Sarajevo and witnessed firsthand the misery of the Ottoman Empire. This wasn't the rich countryside of Anatolia. This was the outskirts of the empire, where the majority of the locals were Christian. And in order to put down the resistance, the Ottomans unleashed a brutal weapon, commonly used for situations like this. In this case, it was the Bashi Bazook, which literally translates into one whose head is crazy. Picture a group of people who grew up in the atrocities of war, completely desensitized to violence and craving nothing more than to loot, pillage, and murder. The Ottomans unleashed an entire army of these people onto the Balkans and said, Go nuts! Anything you catch is yours. You can kill, imprison, beat, 
torture, and rape anyone you want, so long as it's the Christians. Well, this army of crazy people was rampaging around the countryside, turning the lives of everyday peasants into a living nightmare. By the time the two brothers made it back to the coast, they were told all of the land they had just traveled through was now an active war zone, completely engulfed by infighting and sectarian violence. Arthur Evans and his brother sailed back to England where they wrote all about it in their journals. And because he was an eyewitness to the debacle in the Balkans, he was immediately hired as a correspondent to go back and report on the unfolding chaos in the region of Bosnia-Herzegovina. The newspaper even paid for him to return and continue his writings. And here, Arthur was able to achieve two important tasks. He was able to report on the suppression of the local Christians by the Ottoman Turks, but he was also able to continue his passion of collecting ancient artifacts from the Roman Empire. The Balkans were littered with little trinkets left over from the early Romans and the late Byzantine Empire, as well as many artifacts from before. And it was while he was assigned to the Balkans that he came to know the daughter of one of his professors from Oxford. It was the same professor who helped him through his final exam. Her name was Margaret, and she was already three years older than him. But her beauty, her charm, and her wit captivated Arthur. She was an educated woman who grew up in the culture of Oxford, and the two of them had a lot in common. Eventually, Arthur proposed to Margaret, and the two later married. It was during the 1880s that the Ottoman Empire finally gave up and ceded the territory of Bosnia-Herzegovina to the Austrian Empire. Hooray! The local Christians were finally free from their imperial overlords. Yeah, not quite. The Austrians weren't so much liberators as much as they were new owners. If the Bosnians felt like slaves under the Ottoman masters, then the Austrians were simply new owners who bought them. There was no liberty. There was no dignity. And Arthur Evans was very clear about this in his writings. And he felt really bad for the locals and felt that their misery was never going to abate them while under the imperial yoke. Imperialism was a thing of the past. Nationalism was a thing of the future. He was highly critical of the Austrian regime and was even arrested again and interrogated again. But this time, his wife was also arrested and the courts read out her private letters embarrassing her in front of the Austrian officials. He was eventually deported, told never to return. Arthur and Margaret returned to Oxford, where they rented a small house and planned out the next phase of their lives. He was pressured by many to return to the Balkans 
and continue his studies on ancient Roman roads and cities. But he figured his work had concluded, and it was now time to leave and start something new. For the next decade, Arthur and his wife Margaret lived in England and managed a local museum. This was arguably one of the best periods of his life, not because it was a great adventure, but because he got to spend time caretaking the museum and spending his days running local archaeology tasks with his dear, beloved wife. The museum had no structure when Arthur took it over, but he and his wife pondered it, and he ultimately decided to make it a museum of archaeology, and it should be filled with all of the artifacts they find on their excursions. Arthur and his wife Margaret traveled to Athens in search of antiquities for their museum. And it is here that they met the famous Heinrich Schliemann, an archaeologist, who discovered the ancient civilization of Mycenae. He showed all the little artifacts to Arthur, who was now taking an interest in ancient Greece. In the winter of 1892-93, Arthur Evans traveled back to southern Greece to collect small artifacts for his museum. His wife Margaret opted to stay with her sister in Italy. Over the next few months, Arthur traveled the local markets with a student from one of the local universities, a man named John Myers. They went up and down the tiny alleys, stopped at every trinket stand, and bought all kinds of artifacts. It was a good gig for the locals, who collected the fancy stones. At one of these stands, Arthur Evans and John Myers saw little stone tokens with funny writing on them. They didn't recognize them and must have been very old and possibly not from this region at all. He asked the merchant where it came from, and he was told the token came from Crete. In 1892, the island of Crete was not part of Greece. Crete was part of the Ottoman Empire. Arthur knew that he had to travel to Crete, back into the Ottoman Empire. But first, he had to meet his wife in Italy. Once they were reunited, they were to sail for Athens and from there to Crete. They hadn't even made it out of Italy when Margaret felt a sharp pain in her chest. She ached and broke into a sweat, moaning and crying in pain. Arthur took her hand to help her through the attack. If this was a seizure, he knew it was going to be hard. But she could make it through. The attack lasted for two hours before Margaret breathed her last breath. She died on March the 11th, 1893. Margaret was buried in the English cemetery at Alasio. Her epitaph says, in part... Her bright, energetic spirit, undaunted by suffering to the last, and ever working for the welfare of those around her, made a short life long. Evans placed on the grave a wreath he wove himself of marguerite and wild broom, expressive of their innermost feelings, commemorating the event with a private poem. To Margaret, my beloved wife, not published until after his death decades later, Of marguerites and mountain heath, and scented brooms so white, 
Such as herself she plucked a wreath, I wreath for her tonight. For she was open as the air, pure as the blue of heaven, and truer love or pearl so rare to man was never given. To his father he wrote, I do not think anyone can ever know what Margaret has been to me. He never married again. Arthur was 42 when his wife died, and she was only 45. Arthur went into a depression afterward, wandering around aimlessly. He stayed in the private cabin he built for himself and his wife and wallowed. However, his friends tried to cheer him up and kept writing him letters about their exploits. The big news of archaeology was coming from the island of Crete. Heinrich Schliemann had surveyed the land several years before, but was unable to get permits from the Cretans and eventually gave up and went home. He ended up dying only a couple of years before Arthur's wife. All the while, Arthur mourned for his wife, alone in the cabin he built for her, reading letters from his friends and colleagues in Crete. It is at this point that he was rummaging through some of the old trinkets he bought in the markets on his last trip before his wife died, that he noticed the old stone purchased from the merchant, the one with the strange markings, the thought of it coming from Crete and being part of an ancient culture suddenly sparked a fire within Arthur. He stood up from his chair, put the trinket in his pocket and started making arrangements. Arthur Evans was going to Greece. He was going to find out where this stone trinket came from. There is a Greek myth about a king who lived on Crete. He was the king of Crete. He was King Minos. King Minos was the son of Zeus and Europa, and he dominated the seas with his navy. He was also very tyrannical towards the city of Athens. He blamed King Agus for the death of his son, and he demanded that every seven years the Athenians would offer seven boys and seven girls as a sacrifice. They were to be cast into a labyrinth, a maze impossible to navigate, and deep within the labyrinth was a minotaur a creature with the body of a man and the head of a bull. Now, fun fact, King Agus of Athens is the source of the name Aegean Sea. Now, this was one of the oldest myths in Greek culture. It took place before the Iliad and the Odyssey. And if the stories of King Minos were based in reality, he would have to be at least 3,000 years old. At least 3,000. Which meant the stone token in Arthur's hand was possibly made that long ago. Now, while Arthur was on Crete during this period, tensions between the Greek population and the Turkish overlords grew so tight that the place erupted into violence and civil unrest. And soon after, the Ottoman Empire surrendered the island of Crete, and it became an independent nation. 
But that sudden power vacuum led to sectarian violence. And the majority Christian Greek population quickly turned on the Turkish minorities. And what Sir Arthur Evans describes is none other than ethnic cleansing. In one instance, several Turkish families ran into a local mosque and begged to be spared. They were held up with guns and would not come out until they knew it was safe. The local Cretans said they would spare the Turks if they surrendered their guns and were escorted straight to the ports to board a ship, never to return. The Turks reluctantly agreed and threw their weapons on the ground, and the Greeks brought them all outside and lined them up. Among the Turks was a small child, a girl, and Arthur wrote everything that he witnessed that day. He said a Greek soldier threw a towel over the young girl's head while the rest of the soldiers shot and executed the Turkish prisoners. To make sure the violence was snuffed out immediately, the British Empire helped establish a local Cretan government to rule over the newly independent nation. With the Turks out of the way, Arthur Evans got to work. He immediately organized a massive dig with 32 diggers and two foremen. Now, before the Turks left the island, Arthur had been doing his own private investigating. He found similar stone tokens in the markets of Heraklion and asked them where they were finding these stones. The locals directed them to a site of ruins about six kilometers south of the city. And these ruins were located on top of a hill overlooking two rivers. And it is here that they immediately started digging. It took several months, but the teams were able to uncover an ancient city. Behold, said Sir Arthur, I give you Knossos, the palace of King Minos. Now what he unearthed wasn't so much a palace as much as it was a mighty storage center. A place that looked like the central structure of a mighty city-state. There were columns and rooms and stone tokens all over the place. This place is ancient, said Sir Arthur Evans. More ancient than the Mycenaean civilization discovered by Heinrich Schliemann. He named this ancient civilization the Minoans, after their famous king, Minos. During the excavations of the Minoan sites on Crete, Sir Arthur Evans was able to exhume 3,000 clay tablets. The digging extended from the palace city of Knossos, and soon several major palaces were discovered on the island. They were individual cities, but still had Minoan artifacts, giving rise to the idea of an empire or kingdom. On the southern coast of Crete, another major palace site, Phaistos, was discovered. It was built in the same fashion as Knossos, with hundreds of storage rooms filled with pottery. One of the diggers, an Italian archaeologist, noticed some of these rooms had collapsed. The stones had fallen over and buried the rooms, 
and a fine layer of plaster covered it all. This room was located in the basement of the palace structure. There were no signs of fire or arrows or weapons, and it started off as a mystery, but they quickly concluded that there had to have been an earthquake, which brought all the walls down onto the storage building, and instead of exhuming all of the rocks, they simply poured plaster over top of the rubble, creating a flat floor, and then built right on top of it. And once the archaeologists removed this plaster, and then removed the rubble, they found a treasure trove of artifacts, and one of these treasures was a clay tablet covered in circular writing. This clay tablet became known as the Phaistos Disc. There were 45 to 46 characters on this disc, and they were so unique that people doubted their authenticity. But as the dig site progressed, and more artifacts were uncovered, they found pottery stamped with the same symbols as the Phaistos disc. It turns out the Minoans had an alphabet which used hieroglyphs, and these hieroglyphs were unlike anything they had seen in Egypt or Anatolia. This was a unique language, a Minoan language. Perhaps the language of King Minos himself. Now, the language of the Minoans is unclear. Although, DNA evidence suggests they were Indo-European and possibly migrated to the island of Crete from Anatolia. Humans had been living on this island for over 7,000 years, but the Minoan culture didn't begin until roughly 5,000 years ago, or 3,000 BCE. So it's possible that Indo-Europeans migrated to the island and then mixed with the people who already lived there. When we left our narrative in episode 1, we discussed the Hellenic branch of the Proto-Indo-Europeans making their way into the Balkan Peninsula and down toward the Aegean Sea, where they settled among the plains of Thrace and Thessaly. And by the time they made it into southern Greece, they had come up against a mighty seafaring empire called the Minoans. But before we tell you about the Proto-Greeks, let's tell you what we now know about the Minoan civilization. The Minoan culture began on Crete around 3000 BCE. They were protected on their island, protected from the powers of the Middle East that were constantly at war with each other. They were so isolated that none of their cities had walls. The culture must have started off as many smaller city-states on the island of Crete. And it's impossible to say at this time if they started out as adversaries or if they more or less got along. But we can say is that there is no evidence of them fighting with each other. Eventually, they adopted the palace system, which meant that everyone who fished, farmed, gathered or traded, brought their goods to the king, and it was stored in the palace warehouses, and from here were distributed among the people of Manoa. 
Now, what is very fascinating is the pictures on their palace walls and pottery. They were the most elaborately decorated halls, and they used plaster mixed with colored dyes to paint pictures of blue oceans with dolphins jumping out of the water. They also had a lot of pictures of beautiful women with pale skin and wearing fancy dresses. It seemed as though they had women painted everywhere and may have even venerated them. It is suggested that the Minoan gods were female gods. We can also tell the structure of their society became maritime based. Once they started to trade, they quickly expanded their influence north into the Aegean Sea, and soon their pottery was found all over mainland Greece and Anatolia, and as far away as the Levant and North Africa. They had such a high demand for naval power that all the available men were needed on their ships, which meant the women were left in the cities to manage their civil duties. So, if you visited a Minoan palace city at the height of the Minoan Empire, you would notice everything was run by women, whereas if you ever encountered a Minoan vessel at sea, it was always filled with Minoan men. Another strange aspect of the Minoan culture was that they did not glorify war. There were no paintings of battles and fighting in Minoan palaces, but they did have paintings of men jumping over large bulls. And this is very fascinating if you take into consideration the legend of King Minos and his Minotaur. Fun fact. The word tar, as in Minotaur or Minotaur, comes from the word tor, which meant bull. So Minotaur is really just saying King Minos Tor, or the King's Bull. You'll also see that root word in the constellation Taurus, which is a bull. As the Minoans grew richer and more powerful, they started to develop fancier clothing and textiles. They produced a purple dye from sea snails. The process was incredibly long and difficult, not to mention expensive. First, they needed to gather sea snails, thousands of them. Then lay them all on a table, the shells were cracked open and discarded, while the mollusk inside was slid open with a very sharp knife. Inside the snail was a tiny gland filled with goo. This goo was squeezed out onto a plate, only getting a few drops at a time. And once there was about a cup of this goo sloshing around on the plate, it was put in the open sunlight. Then the chemical reaction began. The substance turned milky white first, and then it shifted to yellow, and then green, and then it turned violet, and finally it turned red before darkening into maroon, then black. It was cool to watch. But if the process was stopped as soon as the color was turned violet, the dye could be brought into the shade and mixed with white wool or cotton to dye the textile a very vibrant purple. This process was insane. The amount of labor and sea snails and careful attention to detail made the dye super expensive. But it was also very pretty. This purple became a very valuable commodity during the Bronze Age trade network. Wow, where'd you find out all that information, Daniel? When they were excavating the sites, there was a couple rooms that were just filled, I mean, filled 
with discarded seashells or snail shells. And, and that's where they discovered that the Minoans were actually producing the purple dye. Around the end of the 3rd millennium BCE, after nearly a thousand years of Minoan civilization, the Cretans ventured north into the Aegean Sea and colonized the tiny Greek islands. Their trade empire grew stronger, and soon they found themselves trading with Egypt and Syria, and even a new civilization developing on mainland Greece, the Achaeans, as they call themselves, or the Mycenaeans as we refer to them today. These were the Bronze Age Greek people. They were more warlike and violent and made great soldiers. The Minoans even hired them as mercenaries and sailed them around the seas. This is when the Mycenaean Greeks started to get a sense of how big the world was around them. And even though the Greeks were still very primitive compared to the Minoans, they looked up to them, emulated them, and envied them. For the next few hundred years, the Minoans were the superpower in the Aegean. But the gods were about to test them, especially the god of earthquakes and the sea. Or as the Greeks called him, Poseidon. A massive earthquake shook the very foundation of the Minoan palaces, and most of the brick walls could not survive the shaking. The walls crumbled in on the storage houses, and the ceilings buried the pile of rubble. However, the navy was still a dominant force in the sea and was spared any destruction. So the Minoans kept their neighbors off the mainland and pretended all was well while they frantically worked to rebuild the palaces. Where the old palace stood, if there was nothing but pile of stone, they didn't even bother removing them. Instead, the walls were erected where they once stood, and the crumbled mess of rock and stone and pottery that lay across the ground was covered in fresh plaster. The plaster filled all the cracks and spaces, forming a brand new flat floor. When everything dried and the palace was reconstructed, no one would know that they walked across the decorated tile floor. They were really walking on top of the rubble of the previous palace. At least, not until Arthur Evans dug it up in 1900 CE. The earthquakes may have spooked the Minoans, but their navy was intact. So they managed to pull through and maybe come out stronger than before. We do know that the new palaces were far more elaborate than the previous ones. But we also know that the world was starting to change around them. The pesky Achaeans, the mainland Greeks, were constantly fighting each other. And empires were starting to grow more expansive and wars on the mainland became a threat while visiting the ports. But as long as the Minoans maintained a naval dominance in the Aegean, they could handle the violent world developing around them. But tragedy struck again. This time, when Poseidon struck, he struck with water. One of the Minoan colonies was on a round island to the north. In the modern-day Cyclades, they called it Thera, but today we call it Santorini. The Minoan city was going about its business when the entire island beneath them rumbled. It was a deep shaking. Every single bird flew up into the air. Animals freaked out and ran from their burrows. 
and ripples in the water shook the ports. The tremors grew more frequent, and soon the entire city knew what was happening. The island was about to explode. The tremors grew more frequent, and the shakes more violent. And as all the villagers got under their boats and sailed out into the ocean, the entire island collapsed in on itself. The mountains, the rocks, everything sunk into the earth. Even the water pulled back for a second, but a moment later, the entire island exploded. Rock flew into the air, and not just rock, the entire island, all of it, shattered, flying through the air. Gas and lava sprayed up like a cannon, and the shockwave that followed toppled sails and blew out the eardrums of anyone in the boat who didn't cover their ears. Mountains of fire and black smoke rose into the sky, blotting out the sun, and an entire ocean around the island flowed into the void that used to be Thera. The massive amount of seawater fell into the open volcano, mixed with the magma, and exploded again. And as billions of gallons of water instantly vaporized from the heat and flew into the air, this event caused a ripple of mega-tsunamis that traveled in every single direction. It didn't matter how good the Minoan sea vessels were built or how competent their crew were. When these mega-tsunamis struck the ships, they ripped them to shreds. Picture those crash tests where they drive a car full speed into a wall. Well, this is what happened to the naval ships. But it didn't stop there. The sea waves raced south towards the island of Crete, and the entire north face of the island was struck by these mega-tsunamis. The waves would have been bigger than the tsunamis in 2004 and 2011, and when they hit the Bronze Age ports of Manoa, they wiped them off the face of the earth. Everything was shattered to pieces and pushed all the way up into the mountains of Crete and then sucked back out into the ocean. This was a wound that the Minoans would never recover from. Now many survived, but their navy wasn't there. Their ports were gone. And now there was a brutal winter. A winter that was so cold and dark it completely absorbed summer. Crops failed and people starved. These effects weren't localized to the Aegean. They were felt all across the hemisphere. The Chinese wrote about a summer without a sun, and so did the Egyptians. Meanwhile, back in Crete, at the palace city of Knossos, the aristocrats looked at the black and orange sky and the ash and fire raining down from it. They were going to survive this, but they had lost all of their men at sea. How long was it going to be before the barbarians on the mainland noticed there weren't any more Minoan ships? And how long was it going to be before their hunger drove them to the sea to find the island of Crete, where the Minoans had their infinite storage houses? 
So that's our episode on the Minoans. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap this up? When you were doing that last description, I had my eyes closed and I could... You know, I've got a couple books on geology and stuff like that. And they show photographs of modern-day pyroclasmic clouds coming down in, like, the Philippines or the Indonesia. And knowing what these pictures were like and knowing... It, it was really good. It was really something. I believe I read somewhere that this volcanic eruption was the largest volcanic eruption in almost human history, at least the last 10,000 years. So you think of Krakatoa? Way bigger than that. Yeah. They call that uh, volcanic winter, where the sunlight is blocked out and photosynthesis just does not occur. Plants don't grow. We starve. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.